We're looking at the book of Ruth, and I love this story, and I love it partly because it's short, and I'm not a very good reader, believe it or not, and so it sometimes takes me a while to get through a book. I can do this one in 20 minutes. I'm sure you could do it in 15. So that's your challenge. Go home today and memorize, or at least read, Ruth, and read it this week and read it next week and read it the week after. Seriously, uh, th that's a challenge if you want to take it up. It won't take too much out of your time. And I think you'll be deeply blessed by this book. I think you'll also see that the story of Ruth is incredibly relevant to our time and our life journey right now as well. And so that's the challenge is to read um, Ruth. We are going to start by reading Ruth chapter 1 and just reading verses one through five. And so we're not going to do too much this morning, but hopefully give a bit of an introduction. And my hope is to give you enough of an, an incentive that you'll dig into Ruth and this story on your own. So here's Ruth chapter one, verses one through five. In the day when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi. Their two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah, and when they reached Moab, they settled there. Then Elimelech died, and Naomi was left with her two sons. The two sons married Moabite women. One married a woman named Orpah. Get that right, it's not Oprah, just, just so you know. Orpah, and the other, a woman named Ruth. But about 10 years later, both Malon and Kilion died. This left Naomi alone without her two sons or her husband. What a start to a story. It starts in this, this tragic fashion and immediately we're pulled in to see what happens. What happens to Naomi? What happens next? Well, there's only two books in the Bible, in the whole Bible, that receive their name from women. Ruth is one, what's the other? Esther. And they're incredibly important books and they have a lot of overlap in kind of how they're structured. They also have a, a lot of overlap in the role of God and how God is portrayed in those both those books. But I also think we do strange things with both Ruth and Esther. And I'm not entirely sure why. Esther, we turn into a beauty pageant. Does anybody remember being in Sunday school and hearing about Esther? And basically we heard that was this great beauty pageant and Esther won. It wasn't a beauty pageant. It was a horrific thing that was done to Esther that she was forced to do in front of the king. She may have been beautiful, but this was no simple beauty pageant. There was no swimsuit contest. This was not a good thing for Esther or any of the women involved. And the story is actually much, much darker than that. And so sometimes we have to take off our, our Sunday school glasses and we have to put on our adult bifocal lenses and read the fine print in some of these stories because some of the fine print is actually kind of disturbing. And that's true of Esther. It's also true of Ruth. I think sometimes we turn Ruth into a Cinderella story 
because we love Cinderella stories, right? We turn Ruth into this kind of romance, this love story that unfolds. Ruth is this damsel in distress, and she's rescued by the wonderful, strapping, handsome Boaz, right? Maybe that's in your mind, and, and you'd be forgiven for thinking of that in this story, because as we read through, it seems to unfold that way. Ruth is this, she's a kind of exotic foreign woman who's working in the fields, right? And Ruth, she doesn't sweat, because people like Ruth don't sweat, they glisten. Right? <laughs> and, and Boaz comes out, and he sees he's standing there full of stature, six foot three, long wavy hair. I don't know why all the handsome guys have to have hair, but there he is standing. That's the image in our mind. And we see him, and he spots Ruth, and the romance starts. No, that's not the book of Ruth. <laughs> and so I, I want to just start by trying to uh, disturb our thinking a little bit and break through some of our stereotypes, because I think what we're actually doing with Ruth and Esther is we're actually diminishing the role and the voice of women in the Bible. And we have to be careful because Ruth and Esther in their own rights are powerful voices and powerful feminine voices that we have in Scripture. And so we have to be careful not to relegate them to stereotypes. And so it's important that we do that uh, with Ruth. In fact, the story of Ruth opens up by clearing all of the male actors from the stage. Do you notice that? Within the first few lines, all the men are dead. That's impressive. Like, that's amazing, actually, when you come to think about it. In, in a society that's driven by the patriarchy, especially in Old Testament times, and we find even into New Testament times, maybe even into today's times in some places, we find that all the men who should be the lead characters are gone. They all die. And it leaves these three widowed women. In fact, two of them are not only widows, they're also barren. Did you catch that? Because Ruth and Orpah, they get married and they live 10 years with their husband and they have no children. So not only are they now widowed, but they're also barren, which seems, especially in this time, like a double curse. Like God is very displeased with them. That's how my people might interpret it. Not only are they seen as maybe double curse, but they're also doubly vulnerable because of this situation. However, the purpose of pointing that out is not to pity these women. That's not the purpose of Ruth. It's not to draw your pity for poor uh, Ruth and poor Naomi. That's not the purpose. It's so that we might learn from them. Ruth and Naomi in particular are not some charity project. They are actually our teachers in theology. And once we allow them to have that voice in our lives, then we begin to see something about God because that's what they're here to do. They're here to reveal something about God's love for us in the midst of suffering and God's love for us in the midst of confusing and tumultuous times. And so we need to allow them to be our teachers. So this is not a romantic novel. It's a profound theological treatise that we're yeah, that we're being uh, invited into. And I just want to drive this home a little bit more by saying this. 
that actually the actions, especially of Ruth and Naomi, are the very reason that you and I are sitting here today. Do we realize the importance of this story? They are the reason, their actions are the reason why we are sitting here today. So this is a spoiler alert if you've never read the story of Ruth. In the end, we are introduced to David, King David, and King David leads us to Jesus the Messiah. And we discover through Matthew that there's actually three non-Jewish women in the genealogy of Jesus, and one of them is Ruth. And so the actions of Naomi and Ruth, their courage and what they did actually lead to David, which leads to the Messiah, Jesus, which leads to you and me sitting here today. That's how important this story is. This moment in time, and I bet you that Naomi and Ruth had no idea that their simple decision to stick together and return to Jerusalem and return to Bethlehem would have this kind of impact. And yet it does. And that's part of the beauty of the story, that these ordinary, mundane decisions that these women made had a profound impact on the whole world. And so Ruth is a story of redemption, not just for Naomi, not just for Ruth, not just for that family name, but it's our redemption in Jesus is being unfolded in this story. Well, I think as we read it carefully that the entire story is actually through the lens of Naomi. Maybe we should have called the book Naomi, but maybe it doesn't have the same ring to it. I don't know. Uh, Ruth is the name that appears probably more than others, and this is a book about names, but Naomi is kind of the uh, uh, vantage point from which we get to see the story unfold. It's also the vantage point where we get to feel the story the most. And so Naomi is the, uh, the important person that we focus on and we're drawn into just in those first five verses right down to Naomi. And that's where we see the story from. Naomi, in fact, is a female counterpart to Job. Don't know if that helps you unlock the story a little bit more. We often think of Job and we praise Job. Job was a man who suffered greatly, who lost everything, uh, but then we witness his faith, we witness his struggle with God, we witness his lament and his suffering, and we, we praise Job. Well, Naomi is a female counterpart to Job, only she has it much worse. Because not only does she lose anything, everything, but she's also a woman. I mean, Job, at least, he still maintains his status. And as a man, he was still able to do stuff. He was still able to start over again. Naomi has nothing, and in her suffering, we get to witness um, her faith in all of this as well. So she is a female counterpart to Job, uh, a woman in a foreign land with no husband or sons who's lost everything and responds to God because of that. So in the opening passage, we see three strikes against Naomi. Strike number one, she loses her home, right? She's in a place called Bethlehem. And Bethlehem, uh, the actual word means house of bread. So it's kind of funny that they leave house of bread during a famine to go to another place. And that's part of the kind of irony in the whole story. But she loses her home. And she goes to a place called Moab. Now that sounds nice, doesn't it? Maybe it's in the desert somewhere, warm. You can hang out for the winter. Maybe there was food there. I don't know. It was the wrong place to go. 
Moab is not a friendly territory from, for someone from Bethlehem. Moab, in fact, was the enemies of Israel. They're closely related. We talked about a little bit um, about this in footnotes. Where do the Moabites come from? Well, they come from Lot and his daughter and their incestuous relationship. <laughs> so they had a bad start. And then the Moabites go even further down the trail and they begin to sacrifice children to their God. And so this is not a friendly place. It'd be like going to ride out the winter in Edmonton. It just, it's not a smart move. This is not going to help you. And so this is what's happening here. She loses her home in Bethlehem. She loses eventually her whole status because of this move. Okay, that's strike number one. Second thing is she loses her husband. The poor guy, he dies within like a year of going there. And some people speculate, and some of the Jewish theologians, they talk about Elimelech, that he wasn't going out of desperation, that he's actually, we're told in the first five verses, from a royal line. He's actually a person that has fields. He owns property. He's actually probably amongst maybe the wealthy elite. He probably could have ridden out the famine in Bethlehem. But instead, he goes to Moab. And some say he went to Moab in order to shirk his responsibilities because he would have had responsibility to care for others. And so whatever reason he's, he's doing this, he leaves and it seems like he received a bit of punishment here because as soon as he gets to Moab, within a year, he's gone. He's dead. And because of this, Naomi has no status or protection. And I don't think we fully understand that in our culture and in our area, but you could go to places around the world today where the loss of your husband would have a devastating effect on the whole family. Spent a little bit of time in India and we're working with a number of farmers, about 1,100 farmers in India, working with them partly because of the high suicide rate among the farmers. And the farmers in India have a very small uh, plot of land, and often they'll have to borrow money for the inputs, for the seed and for the fertilizers, for all those kind of things, in order to grow a little bit of rice. But the problem is, if the crop fails, now they're on the hook for the loan. And if they can't pay the loan, sometimes the men, the husbands, the farmers, they either take off, or they are killed, or they commit suicide. And it's an epidemic. It's, it's awful. What happens? Now, what happens when the man's gone? Well, it leaves his wife and children incredibly vulnerable. And so that's where we see human trafficking. That's where we see forced prostitution of these people. This is happening today. And so we catch a glimpse of that. We realize the seriousness of being left a widow in the time of, of biblical times, but around the world today in many different places. So this is what's happening to Naomi. Now she is left incredibly vulnerable because she has no status or protection. So she loses her home, she loses her husband. What's strike three? She loses her hope because her sons died. Now, we should have known this was coming because Malon and Kilion, do you know what their names mean? Sickness and dying. So I'm not sure that I would name if I had sons. Hey, sickness. Hey, dying. How's it going? It's kind of this constant reminder that things are not well in the land and maybe things are not well with these children. They didn't seem to really stand a chance. But both sons die and now she has no hope. 
She has no hope of restoring her name. So she's lost everything. And she's now lost her sons. And so here's the question that comes up for us. Here's the question that comes to Naomi. Does the tragedy of Naomi's circumstances mean that she has run out of God's loving kindness? That she has exhausted God's favor? That's her feeling. That God no longer loves me. He has turned his face against me. That somehow I have gone beyond the extent of God's favor and grace and loving kindness. And that's a question for us too, I think. How do we know that God is still good when terrible things happen in our lives? How do we know that God still loves us, is still loyal to us when awful things happen in our lives and in our world? And that's part of the question that's being asked in Ruth. Well, how did Naomi get into this mess? Who are we to blame? Her husband, of course. I mean, that's uh, is kind of payback, you know, when Adam blames Eve, saying it's this woman that you gave me. Naomi can say to God, it's Elimelech. He led us astray. Her husband is to blame. It's interesting, the book of Judges, which comes right before Ruth and is the background for this whole story, it ends with this statement. There was no king in Israel in those days. Each man did what he thought was right. There was no king. But Ruth opens up by introducing us, first of all, to Elimelech. And his name also means something. His name means, my God is king. So we open up with a little bit of hope. We end judges saying, there is no king. But we open up, Ruth was saying, my God is king. However, Elimelech does not live up to his name, does he? (laughs) Even though his name declares, my God is king, He doesn't live in that reality. He also seems to do what's right in his own eyes. I think some people might appraise Elimelech for taking action, maybe to protect his family or do something in the midst of a crisis. It seems, however, that Elimelech designed his own solution instead of calling on God for mercy and repenting and offering to the nation to turn back to God. It seems like Elimelech took matters into his own hands. And in the end, it looks like he made the wrong move. That when trouble comes, he's quick to leave the house of bread in the land of praise in order to visit the enemy state of Moab, right? And he makes the wrong move. And whether he was avoiding his responsibility or simply trying to provide for his family, Elimelech is the living testimony of this verse. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end leads to destruction. And so this is the challenge that comes to us today from this story and from the example, the bad example, I think, of Elimelech. Challenge is this. When difficulties come to our lives, do we trust in God or do we simply take matters into our own hands? Because sometimes in doing so, without any thought for God, in simply taking matters into our own hands, we go in the path that leads to destruction. So the story of Ruth opens up with the death of Elimelech, my God is king, but spoiler alert, it ends with provision of godly King David. And so that's the bookends of this whole book. And David leads us to the promise of Jesus. And that's really how it goes through the story of Ruth. The story of Ruth are these individuals, ordinary individuals, faced with circumstances that are tragic and bewildering. 
trying to make ordinary decisions. And along the way, God is weaving his will through their lives. And that's really the hope of Ruth. I don't know about you, but sometimes in these days, (laughs) I wonder, am I making the right choices? Am I making the right decisions? In all of the, the things that we have to decide, not only as individuals and families, but as a nation, and we wonder, are we just kind of stumbling along in the dark? I think Ruth offers us some hope that if we are directing our lives toward God, that he will weave his will and good purposes through us. And even in our mundane and ordinary decisions can be used for his greater good and for his glory. So all of the characters, all of the characters in Ruth have a message for us and a role to play. But it's really God at work behind the scenes that is the most interesting character of all. And that's what we're meant to draw, be drawn to in Ruth. My encouragement this morning is that no matter what we're facing, no matter what bitterness we might have, that God is still at work behind the scenes in our lives and can still bring about redemption for ourselves. So let's end with Psalm 117, because that word that um, occurs so often in Ruth, loving kindness, the word in Hebrew is hesed, that word comes up again and again in the Psalms, and it comes up again here. Praise the Lord, all you nations. Praise him, all you people of the earth, for his unfailing love, his hesed, his loving kindness for us is powerful, and the Lord's faithfulness endures forever. Praise the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the story of your servant, Ruth. A woman who came from a foreign country, a foreign land, a land that was not part of the covenant or the promises. And yet she was welcomed, not only into your covenant, but also into uh, the genealogy of your son, Jesus. Thank you for her testimony and her faithfulness. We also thank you for Naomi. Thank you for uh, her uh, constant faith, even in the midst of trouble. Thank you that even in times of bitterness and suffering, that she still moved towards you. Father, help us to do the same. No matter what we're facing today, to know that you are at work behind the scenes, weaving your goodness through our lives. May we see that. May we taste your joy. In Jesus' name. Amen.